and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. I'm really excited about our guest today. As many of you know, I sometimes like to bring people onto the show who I personally know and have either worked with or they have been, I would say, my healers that have tried to get my body into shape and in alignment. And I am really excited to introduce you to Bridget Shea, who happens to also be one of my acupuncturists, uh, somebody in Saratoga that I have gone to many times when I was experiencing some physical pain or if my energy was just off and I had great results from her sessions and I wanted to let you know a little bit more about her because she just recently wrote a book and um, I'm really excited to be able to help her out and uh, let people know about this wonderful book that she wrote and introduce her to the world. So Bridget Shea is an acupuncturist, Chinese medicine practitioner, and Ayurveda educator whose private practice is an integration of Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine. She writes and teaches workshops on Ayurveda, energy medicine, and healthy breathing, and she lives with her family in Saratoga Springs. So welcome, Bridget. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Hey, Congratulations. Thank you. It was a labor of love. <laughs> I bet. That's what every author I usually uh, talk to says. And this is a pretty comprehensive uh, book here. And just for our listeners to know, um, your book that you just got published is called The Handbook of Chinese Medicine and Ayurveda, an Integrated Practice of Ancient Healing Traditions. Yes. So what's kind of neat for me is obviously when I come into your office, it's all about me and we're talking about me and this and that, but I had a chance to actually learn more about you overall because of course I know you're busy, you have clients before me and after me, but um, I was hoping that you could share a little bit more of your background uh, for our listeners and also kind of that pivotal moment when you went to Greece and things really started to come together when you took that trip. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I think that I've always been interested in the dimensions of our reality that aren't on our conscious radar on a regular basis. And I've always been a very vivid dreamer. Um, I used to do, I used to be obsessed. I remember my early teens with like interpreting my dreams and reading about um, dream symbols and things like that. And even thinking back further than that in terms of being drawn to the ancient wisdom of China and India, I can remember maybe being around four years old and in this paper lantern from a Chinese restaurant that I was absolutely obsessed with and being in elementary school and first hearing or learning about the Ganges River and that Indians believed it to be holy and the, the uh, reverence for cows and, and things of this nature always intrigued me and appealed to me. And so as I grew older and um, went to college, I was sort of dabbling with what should I do? Should I major in communications? Because I'm very interested in traveling and perhaps focusing on international communication. Should I stick with journalism because I love to write? Should I stick with philosophy because I love philosophy, which I was exposed to for the first time in depth in, in the high school that I went to? And I think a lot of people go through this where they're sort of dabbling with trying to figure out what their life path is or should be or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I ended up going to school locally. I started out at the College of St. Rose. And through the College of St. Rose, I met a wonderful professor. And he was taking a group of students to Greece to do a study abroad program. And one of the perks of the Greece trip was that we would also be going on a field trip to Egypt. And that totally hooked me because I had always been really fascinated with the ancient Egyptians, 
with the mystery surrounding their fascination with embalming and the afterlife and with the pyramids. And it's just such a fascinating world. Um, so I had always been drawn to that as well. And I, of course, ended up going to Greece and we traveled all around. And one of the places that isn't on the beaten path, I think, for tourists is a, is a little t seaside village called Old Epidaurus. And Old Epidaurus, when I was there anyway, and this was back in the early 90s, was very much like it would have been hundreds of years ago, with the exception of the fact that there was running water and electricity. And I remember one morning taking a walk on one of the paths and just feeling so connected to the place and feeling like there was a real sacredness to, to the land there and to the people and the way that they live their lives. And it turned out that this was the actual origination of the temple of Asclepius in Epidaurus. And the Asclepian healing temple complexes were set up to receive people who were suffering. And many of these people would have been to the medical doctors of the time that were practicing Greece, Greek medicine and who may not be getting adequate relief or any relief at all. So they would eventually, if they had the resources, go to the temple of Asclepius. And when they arrived, they would have um, time in the theater. They would go to the theater and they would see a comedy and a tragedy, which I thought was fascinating because I think that there's an expectation that healing is all about feeling good. And to some extent, that's part of it. But I also think a lot of times we have to go into our darkness and our suffering in order to understand, reconcile, integrate things that are obstacles for us. And so the fact that they did a comedy and a tragedy was very interesting to me. And only now do I understand why I didn't at the time. And then when the temple priest or priestess or whoever was in charge decided that they were um, ready to go into the temple to sleep, they would be consecrated with a sacred bath and they would have healing massage and they would actually spend the night in the temple. And while they were sleeping, there are images that are carved into stone of people going, people hovering over the sleepers with their hands over them. And it looks like someone doing Reiki on someone else or another form of energy work. And so there were attendants that would go around and be present and perhaps were doing energy work on the participants. And the idea behind going into these dream temple clinics was that there would be a direct message from spirit or from the goddess Clepius or from the goddess Hygieia or, or whoever that, whoever resonated with the person at the time or whatever. And that this higher source would give them a message as to either what they needed to do to heal or why they weren't going to heal in this life and why that was okay. And there are numerous accounts that, are, that were recorded of people that had miraculous healings from these prophetic dreams um, and the offerings that the person would have left to the temple in, in gratitude for that. So that just fascinated me on so many levels because I came from an environment where that wasn't something I'd ever heard of before. And having been a vivid dreamer, I was naturally drawn to it. And then fast forward a few years and I ended up transferring to a different school and under the tutelage of um, an advisor that had studied with BKS Iyengar in Pune, India. And he suggested that as part of the rest of my degree program in Asian studies and journalism that I go to India 
and study with BKS Iyengar. And at the time, I had been practicing Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga, which is a physical form, but the philosophy behind it is rooted in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which is a, a marvelous work that deals with the mind and, and, how, and the intricacies of the mind and the stumbling blocks along the path to enlightenment. So I decided that I would go to Mysore instead and study with Patabi Joyce. And Patabi Joyce wasn't teaching philosophy or pranayama, the breathing practices at the time, just the asana practice. So uh, in tandem with that, or I should say in sequence to that, I also studied with BKS Iyengar, who was teaching pranayama meditation, kundalini yoga, uh, I studied with a Sanskrit teacher. I studied with, uh, after BNS Iyengar, I traveled north and and ended up in Rishikesh studying with Yogi Yogendra Misha, Mishra, who I still keep in contact with. He's a very dear friend. And he helped me to read the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali in Sanskrit and to understand them on a level that was a little bit different than what you get in a lot of the commentaries. So... I was really into yoga. I was getting into Ayurveda. And I then, when I came home, continued to study and practice yoga. But my practice had shifted to more of an internal practice. And so, and I was doing energy work. I co-owned a yoga studio at the time. And I was seeing and feeling that I needed to shift the track I was on. And in doing so, I decided that I would go to Chinese medicine school. I had always been interested in herbology and in the meridians or the energy lines that flow through the body. And Chinese medicine school, if you go for an acupuncture degree, it's an accredited program. So it was sort of socially, culturally becoming more accepted. Lots of insurances were accepting it. So it seemed like a win-win situation for me because it felt as though it would be something that I could do, that I could support myself, but also I would learn more about the esoteric information I was interested in. I was also a, a Reiki master for a number of years by this point and, and having amazing experiences with people in the Reiki practice. And I really wanted to understand how it all worked. So I went to Chinese medicine school and never lost my love of yoga or Ayurveda or energy healing. And while I was at school, I had a clinic supervisor who was studying with a, an Ayurvedic practitioner on Whidbey Island. And this was out in Seattle. And she told me that I should go see this woman because she was amazing. And this clinic supervisor had been to India. She'd done the month-long panchakarma, which is a, a rejuvenation and detoxification process in the Ayurvedic tradition. And she was teaching me things about Ayurvedic pulse diagnosis and, and things along those lines. So I ended up contacting Kumadini Shoba. And who is the said Ayurvedic practitioner? And I went for her, went to her for a consult, and soon after that, started studying with her. And she has a fascinating a grip on the practicality and the depth and the simpleness of Ayurvedic medicine. And so I stayed her student for quite some time, and we remain in contact as well. And I will always consider her a primary mentor and influence in my Ayurvedic study. I've studied with Dr. Basant Lad whenever I can. I attend his workshops whenever it's possible. And I also did a few classes down at the Dinacharya Institute in Manhattan. And both Kumadini and the Dinacharya Institute focus on licensed healthcare practitioners with their teachings. I think. I think that may have changed by now since I was studying out in Seattle. But at any rate, uh, I did a lot of self-study and reading, and I, I bought 
volumes of the Charaka Samhita and the Shashruta Samhita, which are like 10 volume sets or something like that. I, I don't even remember. There's just a whole line of them across the bookshelf. But I started studying those and doing thought experiments on my own. And this was back while I was still studying Chinese medicine in school. And I was having a hard time connecting to the way that the Chinese thought system was being presented in terms of the foundational theories and concepts like yin and yang. Yin and yang is a little easier to understand, but once you get into the elements and you get into the pathogenic factors and the spirits, the five spirits that reside in the body, the wushan, things get a little bit hazier and it's kind of difficult to translate what the Chinese says and what words and concepts we might equate that with in English. And so I was really struggling. I spend a lot of time in my head <laughs> and I was having a hard time getting the information from my head into my heart and into my body. So I used Ayurveda, in a sense, to help me better understand what I was learning from the Chinese perspective. And it, things were just clicking and clicking so quickly. And then I'd get stuck on a concept like, how do you marry this information from the Chinese and the Ayurvedic traditions? Because there are subtle differences. They're like different lenses through which reality is being perceived, but both lenses are completely clear. They're both objective, but they're just not quite totally matching up. So I did a lot of what I think Albert Einstein called thought experiments, where I would, I would just sit and try and figure out what all this stuff meant, what what wood was in Chinese medicine, what vata is in Ayurvedic medicine, and, and the similarities between them and the differences and, and trying to match up what they were both saying about reality, about truth, because they're both paradigms for understanding truth. And being in a different paradigm themselves than the way we understand specifically medicine nowadays in the Western world, which is shifting, but being from two different paradigms, trying to match those two things up even to create a practice that makes sense and to be able to talk to clients in a way that makes sense is really challenging. So I, I plugged away at it and I would check in with teachers and make sure that what I was feeling about the correlations between the two were accurate. Um, I was introduced to a book called Tao and Dharma by Robert Svoboda and Arnie Laddie, who um, Arnie ended up writing an endorsement for my book, which I am just floored by because his book was like the source for how I sprung into these thought experiments and it helped me on that path. So I'll forever be grateful for him to him for doing that for me. So from all of this work, I ended up fast forward again, um, going up to inner traditions with, a couple of friends of mine, my literary agent, Joe Kulin, and a dear friend and teacher, Lama Lanang Rinpoche. And Lama had, has a series of coloring books and a biography that he was showing to the acquisitions editor at Inner Traditions, John Graham. And we all went out to lunch and Joe just kind of flippantly Suggested to John um, that he listened to this idea I had for a book. And my idea was what the book ended up being to marry the concepts of Chinese medicine and Ayurveda in a way that not only tied them together, but also made the concepts accessible to the layperson. So this was another thing. In my practice, I constantly have questions, which I'm really happy about. But 
had been frustrated about because people, one of their questions is, can you please recommend to me a book that I can resource that explains some of what you're describing to me? And although I could say, well, for this, you might want to look at that, but that's kind of heavy. So just kind of skim over what you don't understand. And for this, you can look at that. I wished that there was something that I could just say, here, there you go. Instead of giving a thousand handouts to people or recommending, you know, three or four different sources. So John liked the idea. And over the course of the next few years, um, I, I wrote and we edited and finally just released on July 17th, Handbook of Chinese Medicine and Ayurveda. Yeah, and congratulations, because it really is wonderful. And I would say, I know when I came to you, I had all of these different questions, too. And, you know, you really cover a lot of different areas and topics that I think many clients going into acupuncture and Ayurvedic medicine would have. Um, you know, it's like you give the history about it. You talk about the five elements, the anatomy, um, different types of treatment modalities, uh, what you can do with your own nutrition, the prevention and maintenance was one of the chapters that I went through um, over again, and also connecting the importance about the seasons, which I also found really interesting um, as well in some of the education that you gave me during our sessions. But the one chapter that I really thought makes this book more unique than any others is the chapter on consciousness. And you were kind of touching on that a little bit as you were going through, you know, this journey and how the book came to be. But you also acknowledge that it is something that is so difficult to actually put into words and also looking at the way the Chinese kind of describe consciousness and i believe it was with is it with the five spirits that are in this chapter here yes um yeah so i thought that that would be um also a great place for you to maybe expand a little bit on because that that chapter chapter six to me is really what makes this book uh even more unique than others that i've seen well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that because that's my favorite chapter in the book. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, when I was going back through and reading the whole, so you, you read the, the sections as you write it, of course, and then when you're going through the editing process, you still are kind of doing things in sections. But the final edit, you go through the whole thing so you get a real essence or sense of the entirety of, of the work. And I remember I just buzzed through the consciousness chapter and I was like, wow, <laughs> that's actually really good. Sometimes you go through and you're like, wow, did I write that? <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's, and it's something that has always fascinated me as, as I said. And so this is this chapter is kind of evolved into a course that I teach about about just this about the five spirits in Chinese medicine and the sheaths or the koshas in Ayurvedic medicine and in yoga and I should say in Chinese thought it's the wushan or the five spirits and in Indian thought it's the it's the koshas or the sheaths. So from the Chinese standpoint of consciousness, it's like there is a, there's a, con a central consciousness in the body and it's split into five pieces. And each one of those pieces has a primary affiliation with a primary organ in the body. So that's not to say that the energetic of that specific aspect of consciousness doesn't permeate the entire body or that the energetic of that particular aspect of consciousness doesn't affect other areas of the body in terms of when there's an imbalance. But what it means is that the consciousness is so knitted into the physical that it's actually rooted and attached to physical substances in the human body. 
And when those substances are out of balance, it can affect us mentally and emotionally. And vice versa. When the emotion associated with the organ that houses that spirit or consciousness, when that emotion is out of balance, meaning something's not being processed or something has come up intensely, whatever it is, when that emotion is out of balance, then the organ can get out of balance or, or the responsibilities of that organ or the characteristics of that organ can get out of balance. And what that means is that each organ, going back a little bit, each organ is responsible for slash related to a myriad of physiological, mental, and emotional, and, and experiential processes that we don't recognize in Western science as being having anything to do with that organ. An organ is just this entity in Western science that's sort of isolated in and of itself. And yes, it interacts with other organs, and there are ways that this happens, but we don't generally look at an organ and think of an emotional state unless we're speaking metaphorically about the heart and feeling love or something like that. So, so that's kind of the five spirits. And, and the other thing with the five spirits and specifically with the organs is that the organs are also connected to these meridians from the Chinese medicine perspective. And these meridians are channels or pathways for the flow of information. And we call that flow of information qi in Chinese and prana in the Indian system. And so if any of these organ systems has a disruption, whether it's the physical or the spirit or emotional, then that disruption can translate to any imbalance along the course of that meridian and vice versa. Any imbalance along the course of the meridian can also translate into an issue with any of the other things I just said. So that's a basic summary of the Wushan or the five spirits and kind of just an introduction of what they are without getting too specific. Would you mind maybe just giving a brief overview of like naming what the five spirits are and um, just a little yeah, yeah. more of an introduction of, of yeah. what they are? So when the listeners are, um, you know, when, as you're going through it, the listeners can think about their own body, their own self and how that pertains to them. OK, great. So I will do that right now. So the five spirits are attached to five organs and we call these the Zong, or, Zong organs in the body. And these are solid organs in the body. And the primary organ in the body is the heart in Chinese medicine. And that's sort of like when the consciousness lands, the way that I sort of visualize it is when the consciousness lands or infuses into the heart, it then splits into and it's like sends its power to energy or its qualities into four other directions. So an analogy um, of this, I'm sure there are a lot of yoga practitioners and teachers listening is, is and I say this in the book, is that in, in yoga, prana, which is chi in Chinese, is life force energy or vital energy or vitality. But prana is also a sub-characteristic of a constitutional factor called vata, which is a one of the three primary forces in nature and one of the three primary constitutions in Ayurveda. So prana is, is two things, and it's one thing, because everything is prana, but then when you're talking about the life air specifically, there is a prana. So with the spirits, there is the Shen, which is in the heart, 
And then it splits off and there are five shens. But the five shens all have their own name. We have the primary shen of the heart. The other shens in the body, all of their quality, I should say the quality of their, or their integrity is expressed through the overall shen of the heart. And when we see someone come into the office, for example, a Chinese medicine practitioner will say, we'll evaluate how strong we feel their shen is because it glistens out through the eyes. It shines out through the eyes. And when we're talking about that, we're talking about the heart shen, but we're talking about the wu shen, the five shens too. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, the first thing that I think about in another you know, way that I've heard it when you're talking about the Shen comes out through the eyes, it makes me think about the saying where, um, you know, you can look into the soul of a person through the eyes, you know, is is that kind of similar, like that energy that, that you're talking about? Yes. And we, we're also like, you can, you can look into somebody's eyes and see if they're sad or, or there's something going on with them. And you can look into their eyes and see beyond that to this, to their true nature. I think there's two ways of seeing it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. There's two different aspects of the light that shines through the eyes that you can be focusing on. There's that true nature of the soul of that individual or, or animal. And there's, the more emotional, what are you seeing? What are you feeling from what you say? Um, So so even before a client maybe even talks to you about what's going on, you're already assessing just by making eye contact with them. Absolutely. Mm. It's one of the forms of assessment. Cool. Yep. And then, so that's the Shen of, of the heart. It's called Shen or spirit. And then there's the Po, which is related to the lungs. And the Po is like the, it's the, it's the energy that stays with the body when we leave the body. It's, um, it's the energy that's responsible for the DNA and the the, uh, the the building and formation of the embryo. It's like that. It's like the physical intelligence of the body, the po. It's the it's the energetic that allows the body to to function and thrive. And then there is the yi, and that is associated with the spleen. So the spleen in Chinese medicine has a much different connotation than in in Western science. So the spleen is responsible for the transformation and the transportation of food and fluids throughout the body. And so if you're trying to understand it from a Western science perspective, you may lump the responsibilities of the small intestine, pancreas, spleen, and some of what the liver does into what the Chinese recognized as the spleen. And so the spleen is responsible for the thinking mind, the thinking mind. So that's ordinary, everyday thinking, processing, studying something, ruminating over something, worrying about something, anything you do with your mind has to do with the yi and it's and it affects the functioning of the spleen. And the spleen has so much to do with digestion and assimilation that we say that excessive worrying will actually injure the spleen. And 
one way to that we analyze this when we're checking when we're perceiving someone that comes in and evaluating them is we may look at the tongue we'll have them stick their tongue out and you can do this you can look in the mirror and if you have scalloped edges on your tongue that's indicative of spleen chi deficiency and I personally feel that the main reason for that is this overthinking, overworry. Now, there are other factors that go into it, of course. And those other factors, you might further wonder what's the chicken and what's the egg? Is it the worry or is it the, the gut flora being off or whatever? But the fact of the matter is, if there's scalloped edges or teeth marks on the sides of the tongue, that's generally speaking indicative of a spleen chew deficiency. And it usually indicates to me that that person is overthinking or worrying about something too much. Um, I should go back and say that the PO or the spirit of the lungs and the lungs themselves are responsible for processing grief. And so Energetically, they process grief, but if there is unresolved grief, they can be injured by it, and that can manifest physically. This is what Chinese medicine theory teaches. The Shen is responsible for the joy in, in one's life. And then the kidney, or the kidneys, house the will. And the will is not just like willpower. Like we might say someone has a really strong will if they can avoid sugar or exercise for 45 minutes every day, you know, or whatever it is that we value in our culture or personally. But it's not just, it's not just that. It's not that kind of will. It's, it's more like we can connect with what our dharma is in life and without perhaps worrying about anyone else's influence and without listening to our own negative programming and acting out of fear or something like that, we can actually connect with our dharma or what we feel our purpose is or who we truly feel we are and act from that space and make choices from that place. And so that's the will, and that's rooted in the kidneys. And the kidneys in Chinese medicine are said to be injured by fear. So fear, nervousness, anxiety, it's tied into the worry. There's very, There are very fine gray lines between a lot of this stuff once you really get into it, and you do realize how connected everything is once once you really start thinking about it. Um, and feeling it in your own body. But fear injures the kidneys. And the kidneys are like the root of all of the bodily vitality, in a sense. They're, once the kidneys go out of balance, then the other zong organs, or the solid organs in the body, lose some of their juice and momentum. And there's a lot of fatigue, like adrenal burnout would be considered like a kidney yang deficiency. And what's creating the scenario in that person's life that causes them to be adrenally burnout largely can be rooted in fear. So that's the will or the jur. And then there's the hun. And the hun is the spirit that is attached to the liver. And it's rooted in the liver blood. So if someone is anemic, for example, then we may find that they also are having issues with feeling grounded, with getting a good night's sleep, with dream-disturbed sleep. And that doesn't mean dreams that are nourishing us, but just that processing that goes on unconsciously while we sleep at night, that becomes more evident, or they may have very strong, nonsensical dreams. And when they wake up, they feel like they just never slept that night because they dream so much. So the hun is rooted in the liver. 
And the liver is like, in Chinese medicine, it's responsible for feeling like you're going with the flow in life. So if you don't feel like you are sort of, in a sense, effortlessly going with the flow, and that doesn't mean you don't meet the universe halfway, but what it means is that you're totally cool with the way it's going. And you can ebb and flow around the rock-like obstacles that come up without getting too caught up in anything or hung up on anything. If, if you can feel like that, then the liver energy is flowing smoothly. If you are not feeling like that, then there's liver chi congestion. And so the hun and the liver energy are, well, the hun specifically is what we might call the soul in, in the Western world. The hun is what some people might call the spirit. Uh, it's the, it's the piece of source that's within us. And in, and in, the Chi- in Chinese thought, and, and much of this is Taoist thought, the, one of the roots of Chinese medicine, the hun is what leaves the body and goes on to the, to the ever after or the next life, whatever, whatever path it takes. And so that's, that is more connected with the soul in, in Indian thinking. And the liver is in, is, it processes grief. I'm sorry, it processes anger, but it's also injured by anger. And anger can be irritability, frustration, anger, rage. It can be anything on that spectrum. So if you're feeling a little prickly, then you know that your liver energy is, is potentially stagnated or a little blocked and you may or may not understand what the reasons for that are at the moment but the liver is connected to the diaphragm and a lot of times what i find is that when people are shallow breathing a lot that there isn't a sense that they can go with the flow and that that locks up a lot of the liver energy and it can create heat in the body which we might call inflammation or it might manifest into inflammation um, and, and so we want to keep, if you're feeling a little prickly, if you're PMSE, then think about taking some nice deep breaths because the diaphragm is going to press down on your liver and it's going to squeeze out all that stuff. And then all the new flesh, fresh blood and oxygen are going to come back in and it's going to start to be able to flow better and there won't be so much congestion there. So that's just a little tip for, for, the liver energy to help it stay clear and flowing. Wow. So this is all new to me and has been great to read. And one of the, and for you to explain it actually makes it, uh, gives it, I guess even, uh, helps me to understand it even more. But one of the questions, um, that I do have that pertains to all of this. So I have been introduced to acupuncture probably only about for 10 years, I think in my early thirties, I had my first experience with acupuncture with uh, lower back pain. And I was in sciatica. I had a sciatic pain for months and could not come out of it. And, uh, you know, I met a woman and she put some needles in my ear and she said, okay, stand up and let me know how you feel. And I was like, what just happened? It was amazing. Um, but, but since then I have probably seen, including you, maybe a total of five different acupuncturists, um, over these past 10 years. And everyone consistently will give me the same type of diagnosis in Chinese medicine. So one of my questions is, like in in the philosophy of this Chinese medicine, is this something that maybe my soul, you know, kind of came to earth with to work out some of these issues to maybe eventually bring into balance? Um, you know, like, can people heal wherever, whatever the imbalance is, and then maybe there's something else for them to work on? Or is, do people typically have something like what, what I'm experiencing in this 10 year period, I'm hearing the same thing. And it doesn't, I guess it hasn't really been corrected because I still experience some of the same challenges or will have some of the same issues. And then when I go to acupuncture to try to get that balanced out and it will for a while, but then it 
some of that stuff tends to return. And some of it could just be the overall, um, you know, either dedication or lack of dedication that I'm putting into my lifestyle and, you know, how long it takes me to make certain life changes in order to support my dosha and things of that sort. But I'm just wondering in the overall concept, will this be something that will be a part of my challenge throughout the life or is there hope for it to really come to a point of being healed if I became a little more diligent about it? Okay. So here's the thing. That's a huge question. And, and it, it, we could draw an answer from many traditions and belief systems and teachings, but to narrow it down specifically to the topic at hand, the, the Chinese and the Indians both recognize that there are patterns in nature and they've narrowed down these patterns to, in terms of humanity into, into constitutional types. So mind body types. So in Chinese medicine, there are five, there are other schools of thought, but for simplicity's sake, we'll go with the five element types. And in Indian medicine, there are three primary types. But those three primary types are combinations of two of the five elements. So the idea behind these constitutional types is that we all come in with innate tendencies and predispositions based upon what our predominant mind-body type is. And so from the Indian perspective, we would say that if someone comes in with a specific type, then they're most likely to go out of balance first in that type. So from either perspective, Whatever constitutional type you are, whatever mind-body pattern you predominantly exhibit, there are positive and negative attributes to each type. So if you're predominantly a certain type, then you predominantly may exhibit these positive attributes or if, you're, if your mind-body type is out of balance for some reason, then you may exhibit more of the negative attributes or qualities, I should say. So the other thing is that, like in Indian medicine, we talk about how there is a, a spot in, in everyone's body. There's a place, there's a region that is their weak point. And that harmful factors will be drawn into, accumulate, and then can throw the system out of balance from that point most easily. So it's, it's in a sense saying kind of the same thing, that we all have strengths and weaknesses, physically, mentally, and emotionally, and that whatever our predominant strength or weakness is we can make stronger or weaker easier than the others that are associated with the other constitutional factors. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. It does. Yeah. yeah it's so complicated, <laughs> but, but it's com- simple too, you know, right. Complicated yet simple. <laughs> yes. With all of the moving parts. But, um, yeah, I will, I just want to thank you so much for being a guest, um, you know, on the path 11 podcast, there is so much more in your book that we really didn't get into, but I know that I had some other guests on, um, who also were either acupuncturist or practicing Ayurvedic medicine, but you do cover a lot of that stuff, you know, like with the doshas and the five elements. So I didn't really want to repeat too much of what I have asked some other people before, because I really wanted to capture some new stuff, which we did and things that I found really unique to your book. And I would say that it is a wonderful handbook for anyone maybe that 
you know, is getting acupuncture, uh, I would definitely recommend to go out and buy this um, because I know a lot of times we don't have a lot of time to sit down with our acupuncturist and actually process for like a half an hour or hour after our session. Um, so it does explain a lot if your acupuncturist was to give you like certain notes or, um, you know, give you a diagnosis. Uh, I think you did a wonderful job, Bridget. I think it's going to be also a great handbook for other practitioners to be able to give their clients as well. And um, I just wish you a lot of luck with uh, spreading the message about this. And I see you're you're doing a lot of book signings and you're going around and you're speaking at different places. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I'd like you to let our listeners also know uh, your website so they can um, see more about you and the different events and the teachings that you do as well. Sure. So it's BridgetShea.com, B-R-I-D-G-E-T-T-E-S-H-E-A.com. And you can go on there to listen to audio and watch videos. I'm constantly going to be updating the site, adding new things. There are There's an events page if you're interested in attending a class either locally or remotely online. I'm setting up a series that's going to follow the book to, so that we can get more in depth with each chapter of the book. And that will be on the website as well. You can contact me through there to ask me questions, to sign up for the newsletter, or if you're interested in a talker, a book signing or a workshop, you can always send me a message through there as well about booking. Great. And now that you have this book out and it's keeping you quite busy, um, are you still going to be practicing uh, acupuncture and doing treatments for people? Or are you beginning to move in a different direction of really becoming more of like a teacher, um, an author? I would like to move more into that direction, but I also do enjoy working with people. So I'll, I'll stick with what I'm doing for now and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great. Well, you have uh, just been a wonderful person in my life and I am so happy that I've had the opportunity, uh, you know, to come to your office and to have treatments by you and they've helped me tremendously. And I love that I am able to help support you on this journey and I wish you lots of luck. I don't think you're going to need it, but um, I'm just so glad that you you decided to come on to the show. Thank you, April. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you. So I, I really enjoyed being here today. Thank you. If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time.